is July 1998. I'm sitting in this really old Chevy passenger seat. We just finished listening to Keith Green. And my friend, all pumped up with Keith Green music, he turns to me and he tells me about what he's going to do the next year. That year, he's going to go and he's going to study under this awesome, this world-class pastor named Tommy Nelson. And he's going to be in this program where every day for two to three hours, he's going to go through intense Bible study. He's going to get evangelism training. He's, he's going to work in the church ministry. And the best part about this program is it's called Young Guns. Uh, only in Texas, right? So he tells me about this, and I had heard little bits and pieces of Tommy Nelson before. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really interested. I'm like, well, how do you get into this program? He said, the only way into this program is you got to talk to the man himself. You, you have to call Tommy. I said, well, give me his number. So he scribbles it down, and uh, months pass. I listen to every Tommy Nelson tape I can get, the sermon I can get, and um, and I, I this guy I have to study under this man. He is just no one, no one I, I had ever heard taught the scriptures, open the scriptures the way he did. And I, I just, I wanted what he had. And so, I, I'm 21 years old. Like, I, I'm, I'm a kid. I'm barely shaving, okay? Tommy Nelson, at this point, Tommy, just to give you context, he was born and raised Texan. I mean, full Texan. He, he was a collegiate quarterback. At, at, he's now 60 some years old and he can still bench over 300 pounds. He, he is a man's man, and he loves two things passionately. The Word of God and football. Alright? So, little Paul Anderson picks up his phone in his dorm room, and ring, ring. Hello. And I'm like, hello sir, my name is Paul Anderson, and I would like to learn about your Young Guns program. His first question to me was like, you graduating from college, son? I said, yes, sir. Where at? Miami of Ohio. <laughs> like, Ohio? I like, you, who told you to, to flee from the wrath to come, you northerner? And, uh, and he said, he, he literally said, who told you about the Young Guns program? I said, well, Chris, he's in the program this year. And and his immediate response to me was this. You don't want to be a young gun. You would have to get up at 5 a.m. every morning and you wouldn't go to bed. Your head wouldn't hit the pillow till late that night. You would have no freedom, no fun. You would have to devote yourself to the study of God's word. And you would have to work for free in my ministry. And you'd have to work a menial job just to pay the bills. You, it wouldn't further your career. You won't save any money. And you're not allowed to date for a year. You do not want to be a young gun, son. And then he said, If you still think you want to be a young gun, then you have someone call me who can speak about your character and tell me that I should let you be a young gun. Click. First conversation I ever had with Tommy Nelson. So... <laughs> I'm sitting there, phone still in my hand, dial tone going. Tommy Nelson cut through every superficial reason I might want to go from Ohio down to Texas. 
any idea that I was going to go down there and any fantasy I had that it was going to be fun, like I was extending my college years, that it was going to be playing around with a bunch of guys, that, that it was going to be all dreamy and wonderful, he immediately burst that bubble. There was no superficial reason to go. The only reason I would go is if I wanted the Bible. I wanted to know it. I wanted to study it. And I put the church above my own desires, even my own love life. It's the only reason to go. I'll tell you what, the phone was still in my hand, and I had made the decision, though. I wanted to give up everything and be a young gun. And I did. When I finished the Sermon on the Mount, I feel like I just got off the phone with Tommy Nelson. I mean, I feel like Jesus just devoted the last three chapters to tell us every reason you don't want to be a Christian. Do you know what it means? You have to be poor in spirit. You have to mourn your sins. You're going to be persecuted. You have to give up everything. If someone asks something from you, you've got to give it to them. You can't protect your rights. It's not about your life anymore. You don't want to be a Christian. You, you can no longer value the things of this world. Your possessions aren't yours anymore. There is no earthly reason to follow Christ. No earthly reason. Dial tone still ringing. And now he comes just to the point. So are you sure you want to be a Christian? Because this is a choice you have to make. He just took away every possible reason. If you think it's about fame, if you think it's about making yourself better, if you think it's about fulfilling your dreams, making yourself great, he just destroyed all of that. It will not fulfill your dreams or your life. It will not make you better or more successful. You'll have to die. You'll have to mourn. You'll have to lose everything. What are you going to choose? Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and few find it. There, There's a choice here. There's two gates, there's two roads, and there's two destinations. That's it, two. Christianity is narrow. Jesus never says anything otherwise. It's narrow. You're confining. It's limited. It's restricting. You have to give up everything just to get in. The gate is narrow. You can't love your sins and love God. You can't hold on to your self-righteousness and take Christ's righteousness. You can't cling to your possessions and have treasures in heaven. Oh, but the outside of Christianity, it's broad. You can hold on to everything. You don't have to give up anything. You can do whatever you want in any way that you choose that's right for you. That's your way. Christianity, it's strict. I mean, it's full of, uh, all the time, God's Word is going to constantly tell you, you can't go that way. Lust is wrong. False religion is wrong. No longer can you enjoy your lust. No longer can you enjoy your money for, for your selfish gain. It's terribly limiting. The Apostle Paul watched to say that to be a Christian, you have to be a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? You're a slave. Christ owns you. Outside of Christianity, you can go any way you want. The only limits to your life are your own imagination. The way is broad, it's easy, it's spacious. But God's Word, it limits you. 
All the time he's going to say divorce is wrong, give away your money, keep your promises, love your enemies, hatred and revenge are evil, hypocrisy is a sin, and if you ignore these boundaries, the Holy Spirit will grab hold of you, and if you don't think it's narrow, he's going to make sure you know it's narrow. He will crush you. And I'm speaking from personal experience. But Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. And the question is, why? Why would anyone possibly choose to be so restricted and so limited and so narrow? Because every other way leads to destruction. So you're having coffee with your a really good friend of yours, your neighbor, co-worker, and they know that you're, he knows you're a Christian, he knows you go to church, he knows these things, and so he looks across the table and says, so really, why would anyone want to be a Christian? I mean, why, why should I become a Christian? And you, you sit there and you think, well, I want to tell him, if you become a Christian, you'll be a better father, a better husband, a better employer, a better lover. But then you think about yourself and you say, no, that won't work. So, so you want to tell him that if you become a Christian, your life will be full and rich. But Jesus says, blessed are the, are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. That the mark of being a Christian is that you're spiritually bankrupt. You want to tell him that you'll be happier, but Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. You want to say, you'll be satisfied, truly satisfied with life. But Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. You're not satisfied. You want God's righteousness and you know you don't have it. Listen, I believe that being a Christian is a qualitatively better life. I actually believe that I'm a better husband, father, employee, and lover because I follow Christ. But let me be very clear here. That is not the reason. I follow Jesus Christ. If if I make those things the reason to follow Christ, then Christ is just a servant of my true goal, my true desire, which is me. If I follow Christ to make me better, to make me happier, to give me more pleasure, to give me more success, then Christ is not my God. He's a servant to make me God, to make my success God, to make my family God, to make my pleasure God. The only reason to follow Christ is that He is what you're looking for. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And you know that without Him, you'd be nothing. You'd be destroyed. You'd, you'd be crushed and condemned by your own sins. You'd be lost forever. You follow Christ because you want Christ. And when you follow Christ, does it come with other things? It comes with so many things. But Christ has to come before this. There's a there's a sermon, um, 1980s, I think 82. There's a there's a Kiwi named Ray Comfort. Have you guys ever heard of him? He's an evangelist. But in the preaching world, this sermon is a modern classic. It's probably been listened to by more people than than just about any sermon in its day. It's called Hell's Best Kept Secret. I would I would highly recommend all of you go out, Google that. You can read it online, watch it, listen to it for free. But there's an illustration that he uses in this. That is classic for a reason because it is so poignant and true to the way we understand the gospel and our salvation. And I want you to listen to this straight off of Ray Comfort's Kiwi Lip. Two men are seated in a plane. The first is given a parachute and told to put it on as it would improve his flight. He's he's a little skeptical at first, but because he can't see how wearing a parachute in a plane could possibly improve the flight. After a time, he decides to experiment and see if the claim is true. So he, he puts it on and notices the weight on his shoulders, finds it that it's difficult sitting upright. However, he consoles himself with the fact that he was told the parachute would improve his flight. 
So he decides to give the thing a little time. As he waits, he notices that some of the other passengers around are laughing at him. Because, well, he's wearing a parachute. He begins to feel somewhat humiliated, and as they begin to point and laugh at him, he can stand it no longer. He slinks in his seat, unstraps the parachute, and throws it on the floor. This illusionment and bitterness fill his heart, because as far as he was concerned, he was told an outright lie. Second man is given a parachute, but listen to what he's told. He's told to put it on because at any moment he'll be jumping 25,000 feet out of the plane. He gratefully puts on the parachute. He doesn't notice the weight of it on its shoulders, nor that he can sit upright. His mind is consumed with the thought that any moment he's going to be forced to jump out of a plane. But let's analyze the motives for a moment of these two passengers. The, the first man's motive for putting on the parachute was solely to improve his flight. The result of the experiment was humiliation, disillusionment, embitterment from those who gave it to him. As far as he's concerned, it'll be a long time before anyone gets him to try on one of those things again. But the second man put on the parachute solely to escape the jump to come. And because of his knowledge of what would happen to him without it, he had a deep-rooted joy and peace, knowing that because he had the parachute, he could make the jump. So he didn't even notice the discomfort. He didn't even notice when others laughed at him. But he knew he was safe. Enter the narrow road. Because all other roads lead to destruction. Don't, don't enter the narrow road because it'll make your life better, because you'll become a better husband, lover, whatever employee, because it'll make you happy. Enter because it's the only way to find Christ, and Christ is the only way to life. And when you find your life in Him, you will find joy and peace and hope. Some of you right now are thinking, but really, really important people, Christians, pastors, authors, speakers have told me, there's lots of ways. Some of you probably have books on your shelf right now. You can pull out sermons you've listened to. People have sat down and told you in a very loving, compassionate way that there are many roads to God. You know, you don't really have to worry about it. The way of Christianity is easy and broad. They've promised you comfort and hope. And Jesus says that's true. He warned us about this. Watch out for false prophets. There are going to be people who come and tell you just the opposite of what he just said. They're going to tell you, destruction's not coming. They speak for God, but they don't know his word. They come to you in sheep's clothing. I want you to catch this. They don't come to you with their lies right out front. They don't. Nobody's. There's no deception in, in someone who comes and says, oh, Jesus was just a man. Christianity's evil. If someone says that, there's no deception in that. You should love that person. You should share the gospel with that person. But, but they're going to come to you, and you know what they're going to look like? They're going to have a pressed shirt, khakis. They're going to have a Bible, maybe a podium. They might even have one of these cool Madonna mics. They're going to look just like me. They're going to quote scripture. They're going to talk about God's love, and his hope, and his peace, and his joy. But inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. Jeremiah chapter 23. I could preach a whole sermon on it, and I might someday, because we need to hear this. Jeremiah 23 spends, 
most of the book, but the entire chapter there is devoted to pointing out false prophets. You know what false prophets do? They give you false hope. They say, peace is here, safety, God is love. No harm will come to you, peace. And then destruction comes. Let me read to you Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 1, or 21 and 22. I, the Lord speaking, did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned from their evil ways. They came with love and hope and peace, but no judgment, no wrath, no repentance. And so they led the people to destruction. Jesus says, watch out for someone who preaches to you that Christianity is easy, that it'll make your life better. Watch out. How do you know them? By their fruits you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In Israel, even today, like you can you can read one of those little botany books there, they, they have a thorn bush that grows these little berries that look very similar to grapes. There, there are thistles that have this beautiful bloom that looks just like a fig blossom. So from a distance, you look at it, oh, grapes and figs. But by their fruit, you'll recognize them. You go over to that, that little bush, you pull off one of those berries, pop it in your mouth, and you'll immediately know that's not a grape. <laughs> one Sunday after church in Dallas, this old, kind of refined couple said, we'd like to take you out to lunch. And so we go out to this, they had this special place that they always went every Sunday, and they wanted to invite us along. And so we're sitting there, it's this Indian buffet, they know everybody there, and they're just... So, we're sitting there, Jenny had gone to the, the little buffet area and saw what she thought were, were just green bell peppers. And so she, she grabs them. And we're sitting down there at this very refined dinner. <laughs> and I see Jenny just kind of uncomfortable. She's like sweating and like pulling her hair. And I'm like, and then she handled it amazingly well. But, but she had discovered that when she popped what looked like a bell pepper in her mouth, it was actually a fresh jalapeno. And, by your, their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus says, there's a taste test coming. They might look the same. They might sound the same. They might have a Madonna mic. But you know how you'll know them? Every good tree bears good fruit. And every bad tree bears bad fruit. Now that is an encouraging message to a pastor. That I don't have to produce fruit. That if I faithfully teach the word of God, it will produce fruit in you and in me. It will change us. If I, if I'm just faithful to this text week after week, it will bear fruit in your lives. It'll bear repentance. People saying, Oh my God, I didn't know. I have to turn around. People saying, that people who look more and more like Jesus, what is it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. People who experience the grace of God for the first time. That will be produced in you. It'll produce us loving our neighbors. It'll make us better husbands, fathers. You know, bad fruit. People who are living in unrepentant sin. People who look really religious or really irreligious, but nothing like Jesus. And people who refuse to submit their will and their life to the will of God or the word of God. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown 
into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Listen, nobody, if you, I hope you heard this, I, I prepped the guys beforehand, this is going to be a hard message. So if you notice, they were like falling all over themselves to talk about grace today. I loved it. Because we, we, we really do believe in grace. You don't save yourself. Nobody, nobody will be saved because you bore good fruit. Nobody. Your fruit does not save you. But nobody will be saved who doesn't bear good fruit. Did you hear that? Fruit is not the test. Fruit just reveals who you are. Good fruit is the evidence that you are saved. And false prophets do not have good fruit. And even with their message of love, hope, and peace, they're not true Christians. They're cut down and thrown into the fire. But false prophets aren't the only ones who will deceive you. There's a much worse enemy, a much more dangerous liar, and it's my own heart. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, I want you to picture this. Here's many, not a few, but many people will come to God at the end of time, fully confident of their salvation, ready for this day. They're looking forward. Oh, when I meet Jesus, what a glorious day. And he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? I wait, I wait to pay attention to this. Lord, in Greek, curios, it, it can be reverential. So at very least, this is reverential. But it also happens to be the translation of the Hebrew name for God. The, it, the earliest Christians, what was the confession? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart, you will be saved. The, it's the confession of every Orthodox Christian throughout time. Lord. But he doesn't just say Lord. He says Lord, Lord. So he's orthodox. Made an orthodox profession of faith. He accepted Jesus. This guy says Lord, Lord. In Hebrew and in Greek, in among the this culture in the ancient Near East, this is called, for all of you nerds, it's called a double vocative. Great. What does that mean? That means that there is a personal connection, an emotion this is, this is, this is, um, this is an experiential statement. So when Jesus says to Martha, he didn't say, hey, Martha, stop that. He says, Martha, Martha. And when people refer to the Lord as Lord, Lord, you, you know, that only happens a few times in all the scriptures on the lips of Abraham after God made his great promises to him. On the lips of Moses. On the lips of Joshua. So only a handful of people ever speak this intimately of their Savior, right? This guy is orthodox. He's had a true spiritual experience. He feels passion when he sees Jesus. And then he lists all the great and spectacular things he's done for Jesus. Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? and Perform many miracles? I mean, this guy, he taught the word of God. This guy, he helped people who were in bondage to sins and brokenness and depression and slavery. This guy, he performed miracles. He set people free. He changed the world. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I I never knew you. I'm not your God and you are not mine. I, I never knew. Away from me, you evildoers. 
This is haunting. How is this possible? I mean, what just happened? This guy has all the credentials of the ideal Christian, and Jesus just said, you have no relationship with me. Because on that day, the question will not be, did you believe intellectually that Jesus is your Lord? The question will not be, did you feel that Jesus is Lord? And the question is not even, did you tell others that Jesus is Lord? The question is, is, is Jesus my Lord? He said the right things. He felt the right things. He even did the right things for Jesus. But he never surrendered his will to Jesus because he's still an evildoer. And if you're wondering, is this even possible? Can you imagine such a wicked person who would do all these outward things and inwardly not submit his will to God? I'd have to say, in high school, I had a profession of faith before my church. I was baptized as 11 years old. Everyone looked at me and said, what a good Christian boy. And, and through high school, I, I did many things for the Lord. I, I had spiritual experiences. I went to camps. I wept at camps. I mean, I, I had emotional experiences all the time. And, and I did things. You know, as a senior in high school, I actually preached once at my church. And yet at the same time, I was the Lord of my own life and it tore me to pieces. I was living in unrepentant sin, and I refused to give God my reputation, my future, my academics, my sports, and my relationships with women. At the end of my high school time, right before I went to college, I uh, read 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 4, and I want you to hear these words. It said this, The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And that word cut to my heart. And I knew that that wasn't a word for everybody. That was a word for me. That I was a liar. My life came crashing at that verse. And it crushed me. But if you read the rest, it says this, verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live him must walk as Jesus did. You have to take the narrow path. It was unavoidable for me personally. I had to make a choice at that point in my life. Was I going to be the Lord of my life or was I going to submit to Christ? And I'm not going to pretend like it was easy. I was crushed by it. I had to either give up my will, give up my life, give up my control, or give up the fiction that I was a Christian. One of the two. And that that year I broke. I surrendered my life to Christ. And that year I experienced a, a level of surrender. And I'm not going to pretend like it was easy. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And to be who I wanted to be. But I experienced a level of surrender. And dying to myself every day that I had never known before. And it was the hardest year of my life. And it was the happiest year of my life. And it wasn't a one-time choice. Over and over again, as the Apostle Paul said, I had to die to myself daily. I had to surrender. But every day it became a little easier. You know what? This morning I woke up and I had to die to myself. I had to surrender my will to God. That Christ would be Lord in my life. It won't be easy.
but there's life down that road. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of Christ, of mine, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So if you put his words, if you obey them, if you live them out, if you, if you say, if you believe in Christ, and your life bears the fruit that you show it, that you're obedient, you, you're like a house on the rock. The rain's going to come, the streams will rise, the winds will blow and beat against that house, and it will not fall. You will stand for eternity based upon Christ and what he's done. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put it into a practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew against it and beat against that house, and it fell. Everything in your life that you've built apart from Christ will fall. Everything. That includes your profession of faith, your spiritual experiences, your great works that you're planning on doing for God. If you don't submit, if Jesus is not the Lord of your life, if you have not surrendered to Him, church, the storm is coming. You know, we can pretend like it's not, but the fact of the matter is, you know, even if you live through this wonderful, fanciful life where it's just like cupcakes and puppy dogs, the fact of the matter is the day is coming where you're going to die. And the only way you will stand is if you've surrendered everything and said, Christ, you are my all, you are my life. And I will not depend on you, on myself, or my works, or my honor, but I will truly repent of being my own God and choose you as my God. I want to give you a few minutes. There's two groups of people I want to talk to right now. There are some of you who are living in unrepentant sin. That you're breaking the word of God and you know it. And that you refuse actively to surrender your life to God. And you know it. And for you, I, I just want to say, you should have no confidence in your salvation. John says you're a liar. He says you're a liar. I don't say that to be mean. I say that uh, in horror. I, I don't want you to be on that road. I don't want you to be there. I trust that you don't want to be there either. But I'm going to love you enough to say, you have to turn. When you bump into the Word of God, you have to turn and get back on the narrow path. You have to follow Christ. And there are others of you who have surrendered your life to Christ, but constantly live in fear, who are constantly plagued by guilt, because you think that God's judging you by your fruit. For you, I want to say, live in freedom. You built your house on the rock. Your, your house will not fall. If you're depending on Christ, if you're clinging to Christ, your house will not fall. I don't care what storm comes. If you're clinging to Christ, I don't care what other people think of you or what anything happens to you in this life or in the next. No one can take that away from you. Cling to Christ. Let Him be your hope. Let Him be your foundation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If this is your heart, be encouraged. God says you're blessed. I'm gonna pray. Hyphas are gonna come up. And they're gonna, they're gonna lead us in a song. But first, I want you, the first part of the song, I just want you to listen. They'll invite you to sing in a minute, but I want you to listen, and I want you to take time to look at the text and do what you need to do with God.
Pray with me.